Well, as you probably know by now, the OHL podcast is all about hearing those stories from players who have been in the game. And oftentimes they're lighthearted and we get to have some laughs about some of the shenanigans. And I'm sure we'll have the occasional laugh today too, but there is, I think, both a cautionary and inspirational tale that we're about to have with Rick Smith Jr. And I emphasize the junior as we welcome Smitty to the podcast. And I mean no offense by that, but Rick, thanks very much for joining the show. No, I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. This is uh, this is an honor to be here. I certainly, when I say I mean no offense by adding the junior, I say that because just briefly, my father was the principal of my high school. So I was always just the principal's kid. And there was a lot of times where I'm like, can I just be Mike for a little bit instead of the principal's kid? And for yeah. you, I mean, the namesake, you're Rick Smith Jr. What kind of impact that had on you? Well, you know what? Here's the thing on that one, because a lot of people would confuse the Rick Smith from the Boston Bruins. My dad did play Rick Smith as well, so senior, uh, but he was with the Cincinnati Bearcats and then uh, was actually in the IHL before was released when some guys got sent down, and that was the extent of his career. But the the hockey the hockey bloodline in our family just it's it's absolutely crazy. It runs so deep because it goes back. Um, generations to my late uh bill mccreary senior who in fact played for the guelph uh biltmore mad hatters <laughs> that's a mouthful uh won the memorial cup back with them uh that was in the 50s and then had uh cousins who played for the peterborough peets bob atwell uh greg taberge uh they won the memorial cup back in the 78 79 season then, of course, went on and, and played in the NHL as well. Uh, my, my other great uncle, Ron Atwell, played for the Rangers. Uh, he played for St. Louis. Then you had my grandpa's brother, my other great uncle on that side, Keith McCreary, who was in Montreal, was in Pittsburgh, and then captain the Atlanta Flames. Uh, and then you have uh, the cousins. It just goes on. My our, Another cousin, that Bill McCreary, the referee, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame, um, Greg's son, Brett Tabarge played for Peterborough uh, and it just, it's crazy. It just keeps going on and on and on. So that's, those are some great names. And Bob Atwell's a former guest on this podcast. I would argue biggest goal in Peterborough Pete's history. The one that won them their only Memorial cup, right? Green winner. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Amazing guys on that team too. But uh, yeah. And then my grandpa also uh, his son, my uncle, Bill McCreary, of course, famous for that hit on Wayne Gretzky. And his son now is uh, Bill McCreary played in the minors. Um, He's uh, he's actually a coach now, so trying to follow still in those footsteps of, uh, you know, helping out the next generation. So was there ever any other chance for you, Rick, other than to end up playing hockey? So here's the thing, like obviously huge hockey family, but the thing that I always respected my parents about and still appreciate today, especially raising a son of my own, is they always said, listen, we'll never be dream stealers of yours. Whatever you want to do, we will support you 100%. And if it's not hockey, it's not hockey. Uh, but they just wanted me to have that love and passion that would grow from myself of enjoying something, not so much being because everybody else is doing or the influence of. And so uh, it's something that I still take with me today that I remember way back when, when I was just a little guy and this started to become somewhat of turning it into a career. And, um, you know, I, I still appreciate, uh, th those moments and what they spoke over me back then. 
your father was involved in a drunk driving accident when you were just a child. As you look back on that now, Rick, how did that become a turning point in your life? Yeah, it's and so I, I talk about that uh, story. It's still so vague in my mind of being just, uh, you know, two years old. Um, uh, that impact and what dad went through at that time is still a story that I share with other people because of what he went through and what that actually involved in and that drunk driving accident. Um, you know, the pictures that I still have from back then and his jaw being wired shut, you know, obviously we still see the scars today when we're on the beach and whatnot. And it's a reminder. Um, but you know, my dad's here for a reason. I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, he's, he's transformed a lot of people's lives by sharing what he's gone through. Um, and I, and I, I truly feel that God's got him here for a reason. Um, and he's got a story in and of itself of what he went through from that whole period, because he was literally pronounced dead on arrival, uh, and they had to bring him back. And, um, fortunately they were able to revive him. Uh, but, you know, of course, growing up and, and seeing those type of things going on and the dysfunction of what that leads to and starting to understand that at such a young age and how that it was impacting the family. It was um, it, it was still foreign to me, uh, but obviously saw the impacts of what that can do when it, you're really at the other end of that spectrum and the severity of the progression of what can happen from from drinking. And of course, that turns into that being somewhat of an abuse. Do you ever look back and and think to yourself, I mean, my gosh, I, I made it as far as I did and I played at the level I played at, even though I was carrying that baggage with me all the way through? Yeah, it's uh, I went through a really tough period of time. I, you know, um, I'm turning 45 this year and I would even probably say in my mid to late 20s because i did come out of retirement a couple times to play again fortunately through my my story of of addiction and then uh recovering and and um, being sober now but i look at where i was at that time i look at what was going on even when i was 18 19 years old uh you know made the US World Junior team but blew up my ACL. That was a big that was a big blow to me when I was playing for the Spitfires and that started really the downturn. Like if you really go back in history and you start looking at all right, where did this really go south hard? And that's when it really went hard because that was 9 months. I mean, I wasn't coming back. I didn't play in the World Juniors. And of course, uh teams and I would have, you know, if I was a coach or a GM looking at this as this is a liability not knowing how this kid's going to recover, you know, after this, after this surgery. So after blowing out my ACL, you know, I did make that recovery, but of course you're still in the back of your mind, like the, you know, what if this would have went the other direction? Um, and in my mind, you know, of course, seeing all of the relatives and, you know, the legacy that all of them kind of blazed that trail with, um, you know, it's very difficult to be facing at the end of your junior career with, really no opportunity. Um, and so that just kind of led me into a deeper path and I found myself in the East coast, of course. And, uh, I always said like, there's, there's no other place I'm going to play other than the NHL, you know? And so all of those things were starting to really drag on me through that period of about 18 to 20. So let's, let's talk about that period, because of course that's where you're in the Ontario hockey league. You mentioned the Windsor Spitfires blowing out the knee, Next thing you know, you're traded to the Plymouth Whalers. I'm I'm guessing at that point, Smitty, you're feeling like you're on top of the world because that Whalers team was built. 
that team, uh, that was something special there. I mean, if you if you look back on the hockey DB stats, I was doing okay after coming off that ACL reconstructive surgery. Um, you know, I I came back guns a blazing, and uh, you know things were going well. But the problem for me and where I was, and and the message I hope that even if guys that are playing in the AHL and the next generation and someone might listen to this five, 10 years down the road is, uh, you know, really understand the opportunity because time is so small. Um, those, these windows of opportunities. And for me at that time, like I was, I think it was, uh, I'd have to go back and look, but I think it was 25 points in 30 games, something like that. And this was right before Pete pulls me into the office, Pete DeBoer, um, of course, who's coaching uh, in the NHL now today, but I always respected him for his, this conversation. And I know it was tough for him. It was tough for me. Um, it was my last year in the OHL, but I'm in a stacked team, right? Like my centerman was David Leguan, Harold Drukin, uh, Robert Esch. I mean, the list just keeps going on and on uh, guys that went on and played, but he said to me, you know, look, you're going to be a professional next year and you need to start acting like one. And he said, it's apparent that, you know, uh, you want to have fun and we're making a run for the Memorial Cup here. And so if you're going to have fun your last season, a really good fun place to go to is Kitchener. And, you know, uh, it's a pretty tough lesson to learn kind of tail between the legs dog moment, so to speak. I, I was fortunate. I got to live at home playing for the Plymouth Whalers, going to high school with all my high school friends. And so uh, having to kind of bear that bad news. I mean, I, I, I dug my own grave on that one. Um, and so headed up, uh, headed up the 401 to, to Kitchener after being traded from that, knowing that these guys were making a run for the cup and it was just, it was another blow and it was all self-imposed. But at the time, Rick, I, you probably didn't realize that, right? Like you can look back now, 20, 25 years later and say, okay, self-imposed. I have to own some of that. But at the time, I'm betting you're just like, well, this, you know, I'm leaving a contending team going to a not a non-contending team. And sure, I wasn't taking hockey seriously enough. Were you angry? Oh, was I angry? I think what happened for me was after that hockey season – so I piled it on. I mean, Kitchener was what it was. I still, you know, whatever, scored 20-plus goals um, and ended the season. And and for me, again, uh, you know, once I got through the season, things just kind of escalated again with the drinking because where I found myself, and it was in the back of my mind with what Pete had said to me, um, the severity of it, it was kind of like whatever, you know, brush it off the shoulders. I got a cape on my back type of mentality. And um, work hard, play hard was was what I always said to myself. Uh, but the summer after my 21st birthday, which would have been July 29th, about six days later, I checked myself into rehab before going down to my first year of playing pro hockey in, in the East Coast. And so that was the beginning stages of, yeah, I was angry, but I, I, was, I wasn't necessarily angry with Pete. I was angry at the missed opportunity, but I started to take an inward look when I actually went into rehab to say, look, man, like this is, this is because you've let your addiction take a hold of you. Do you remember your first drink, Rick? I was young. Um, so this would have been dating back to when I was about 14, 15 years old. And it was a terrible experience, by the way. Uh, there were some skunked beers that my dad had in the garage. 
<laughs> and I think they were Coors Lights, uh, if memory is correct. Uh, and yeah, I went to a buddy's house that night when I spent the night. I brought some beers over that were left in the garage and um, found myself getting buzzed up on a few of those beers, but just just tasted nasty to me at the time. That was my first experience. Second experience was a little bit more intense. That was, uh, you know, um, I would say a quarter of a of a uh, Crown Royal bottle. Uh, didn't know how to drink that and found myself intoxicated in the bathroom, throwing up to the point where my dad had to come and pick me up. I did call home, but he, I, I physically couldn't get up on my own. He had to pick me up, carry me to the car, and then carry me into the house and put me in my bed. So that was my first and second time drinking. You mentioned that rehab stint nine days after your 21st birthday. And I understand the birthday itself was one to remember. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, you know, we had a family cottage up in the Canadian side up in um, uh, Southampton, um, right on right on uh, Lake Huron there on the Canadian side. And my parents were up at the cottage with my brother and sister, which left me full reins of the house at home. And um, yeah, that was that that's a that's a blur. I remember the first couple hours, uh, particular bar that we would go to here locally. But then I had friends back at the home that were getting the kind of after party, so to speak, all primed up and ready to go for when I got back there. And that just looked like a circus uh, the next day to, uh, you know, where the point of my my uncle um had come over and, and, uh, he, he had, had asked me, you know, should we take you to the hospital and get your stomach pump? So he saw the state I was in and, you know, I was told him, I told him I was okay. I just needed to get some sleep, get some food in me and kind of soak this up. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was the big blowout. And of course, you know, and my dad's catching wind of what's going on. And I knew I was going to have to face the music when dad came home, which wasn't a pretty, pretty picture in my mind. Uh, anticipating what that was going to be. Did you feel then when you made your pro debut that you were in a better place? Like did, did the rehab stint put you in a better place? It was, it was amazing. It really was. Um, I basically gave myself an adult timeout going to rehab. Look, like my dad went into rehab and he had been sober now for quite a few years. So I saw the change in dad at home. I saw the change in my parents' relationship. I saw the the mannerisms change just on how, you know, he treated me and my siblings. Uh, dad always loved us like very deeply, would take his shirt off his back and we still hug and kiss today. Uh, that's just how our family is. Uh, but you could, it was, it was very distinct that there was a major change that had transpired because of his sobriety. And so that was still at the forefront of my mind when I went into rehab and then came out and having this excited expectation of what that was going to be now living the sober lifestyle. Now, just, I mean, it's not to make excuses, but none of my friends back home were sober. Um, you go to a hockey team and there was only one guy I ever played with. His name is Oak Hewer. Uh, he, he's a guy from Ottawa, played in the OHL and the Sioux, and then and went on, played uh, in the minors as well. But he was the only guy I had ever been exposed to in hockey who had never picked up a drink or a drug. Um, and so 
I knew that I was fighting a battle when I went down for my first year of having to now be in these type of environments, you know, post game, things like that, going to the bar, which isn't a conducive lifestyle to stay sober. Somehow I managed to stay sober for approximately about six months. It was all the way till the very end of the hockey season. And now mind you, uh, I have found some footage on YouTube of Dennis DeRogier was my coach back then. And I was having a great breakout, just a great rookie campaign um, was starting to get power play time. They were putting me in for the, uh, uh, the shootouts, um, which I won a, a few of um, uh, scored my first professional hat trick. Um, so a lot of good things that were going on. And, and because of my, uh, our play as the all rookie line, we were starting to get, uh, respected in the league and whatnot, which was really cool. And so I was noticing that and I was still sober at the time. And so completely different from the year previous to where uh, things were going somewhat well, but fighting my battle with addiction and then getting traded away. So it was, it was two different spectrums. So I've lived it both basically at that point, but then, you know, you hang around that fire long enough, you go into wet places, places that someone like myself shouldn't be in. And soon enough, you're going to find yourself drinking those things and, and getting into other things, which I did uh, where I started dabbling into drugs at that point, at the end of that hockey season. I definitely want to come back to that because I know it's an important part of this story, but I couldn't help but smile when you mentioned Rosie. I just saw Rosie the other weekend and oh, really? the Rosie. Oh yeah. And I mean, this guy, the stuff of legend in, in the yeah. game for sure. Yeah, it was amazing playing for him. Honestly, I, I after it was really cool because when I went down, uh, they wanted me to come down after my last game in Kitchener. And so, uh, of course, they wanted to see what I was about. Got down there, had a goal, had an assist, did well. And, and um, that was interesting all in, in and of itself, too, because here I am, you know, playing in Kitchener. It's freezing cold outside and we're playing against uh, – Fort Myers, here I am in Florida for a week, you know, it was completely different, but Rosie was awesome. He, um, I like playing for him because I, I understood, uh, you know, the way that he wanted me to play was, uh, I would say probably similar to how he played. And so I, I liked his intensity and, um, it was, uh, uh, of course, easy for me to come back that next season. You, you have said openly, Rick, that you had come to terms with the fact that you would be dead by the age of 30. What does that say when you look back to your state at the time in your mid to late twenties? So my, it really escalated for me that that next season when I was in new Orleans playing for the new Orleans brass, Ted Sater was, um, was my, was my coach. And then actually the GM is Dan Belisle. Uh, which his dad, unfortunately, uh, just passed a few weeks ago, who was um, was uh, with the Red Wings organization, but both great people there. Um, I got traded there specifically because <laughs> the year previous, here I am playing for Birmingham. And, and by the way, the night before this game, uh, we're at Birmingham playing against the Brass. We're there. Of course, guys are going out on Bourbon Street, and I'm sober at the time. And when I tell you how strong this magnetic effect that was going on for me to go out on Bourbon Street, being sober, and just that that battle I was having sitting in the hotel room that night, I was so proud of myself because it was a moment for me where um, 
because of my sobriety, that next game playing in New Orleans, um, I scored a goal and then I scored to, to end the game uh, uh, with the penalty shot. Um, and so I was sober and, and knowing what I missed out that next year, I saw what New Orleans had to offer. And with my relapse, it was like, I want to be traded to that place because I'm going to play some hockey and I'm going to tear this, tear this town up. That was really, it started uh, the climax of the, not just the drinking now at this point, but getting into the hard drugs with, you know, just being transparent, you know, the cocaine and ecstasy uh, really started to take a hold when I, when I got to new Orleans. And so I was just on like a one way train, man. And um, I really didn't care at that point if this, this was going to kill me or not. How easy was it to access Smitty? It was, it was a joke. I had never in my using days uh, specific to drugs, even after the, after playing in the minors, um, I, I just, I don't know, happened to be around the right people. It's not really the right terminology, but I had people just handing me drugs there, you know, um, it was, it was easy, just the right people to talk to. And, you know, they were fans and uh, you know, there's some people in particular, that all of a sudden you'd find yourself at the bar with them and here's the the white little bag. I'll be back. I'll come. I'll see you in a few minutes going to the bathroom. So it was very easily accessible. Outside of the impact on your game and, and your career, really, how did your substance abuse impact your relationships? Yeah, it, it would first start with a relationship with myself, right? Like um, the shame the guilt, remorse. Um, I always looked at people previous to doing drugs. Like those people are absolute losers. Like, you know, that's just like bottom of the rung. And uh, I turned into that person. And so that was a tough thing to, to really come to terms with like, like here I am and um, you know, snorting cocaine and doing ecstasy playing professional hockey. And uh, you know, I just, I really didn't care about the relationship that I had with myself. Cause I, at, at, which point towards the end of that season when I did get released from that hockey team, by the way, uh, Ted Sater had taken me down to Dan Belisle, the GM's office the one day, and I'd been a healthy scratch for several games. I knew something was coming and, um, I'd actually started out the season really well again, you know, had 16 goals over a period of a certain period of time, and then just fell off. My body couldn't keep up with what I was doing to it. And uh, just basically said to me, look, Smitty, some guys can do this off the ice. Some guys can't, you're not one of them. And, you know, we got to release you here. And um, uh, they did that right before playoffs. And so here I am in new Orleans and uh, my one buddy who was down playing for Pensacola, uh, they were done. And he said, why don't you come on down? And so I waited for essentially new Orleans to get knocked out. One of my buddies came down with me. And I basically sold my life is what I did. Uh, whatever monies I had left in my bank account, um, I stopped making my car payments, uh, stopped making my cell phone payments at that time, which was probably one of the first flip phones out there. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And I was selling clothes. I was selling CDs, just anything to, to get the drugs. And then one morning I found myself on the beach, hadn't slept. Uh, we had 
partied pretty hard and I'm looking out in the horizon and I see the waves coming in and, um, you know, of course, feeling the sand between, between my toes and I picked my head up and I'm just looking at the horizon with the sun coming up and I'm going, is this really what it's all about? Is this, is this my life? And, uh, it was just one of those moments where this tiny little spark started to happen again because I knew it was bad. Um, and when you talk about those relationships, when I got released from new Orleans, like who in their right mind wants to call their parents to tell them they got released because they have this really bad off ice, you know, problem with drugs and alcohol. And so, uh, you know, the one thing about addicts is we're really good or we think we're good at trying to hide things. And um, my dad was literally calling the police stations in New Orleans. He was calling morgues. He called uh, my buddy, Jeff Lazaro at that time, one of the, the, the captains of the team and wanted to know my whereabouts. My brother was having nightmares that I was killed. Of course, my mom doesn't know where I'm at. My sister back at home, still young, trying to like, where's her brother? Um, I didn't let my mom know until my buddy down there had said, and it was mother's day said, have you not talked to your parents? Like you should probably call your mom. It's mother's day. And I'm like, I'll send her a card. And so that was the first time when she did get that in the mail and it wasn't on mother's day. It was probably a, maybe five days later that they knew that I was still alive. And so, you know, forget about it. Any type of, uh, you know, relationship, um, girlfriend wise, I mean, it was, uh, it was very complicated from the perspective of how much my passion really at that point in my life just turned like, forget about hockey. It was all about the drugs. And so, um, there was no, there was no real true substance to a relationship that I had. It was just, who can I talk to? Where are we getting the drugs? And that was the substance of the relationships. I'm hesitant to to use the word miracle. I, I think it's reserved for, you know, the most wondrous things, but it's got to be pretty damn close, Smitty, that you you being alive today is, uh, at, at least on the edges of miraculous, all things considered. I would I would tend to agree with you. Um, I don't know why I'm still here. Uh, let me put it this way. For my faith and what I believe, and I know God has me here for a reason. I don't know why I've been chosen to still be here because, look, I've been to one too many funerals. I've been to one too many funerals of friends of the family, close friends, um, other funerals I've been at with people drove away from a family member who died and they ended up killing themselves because they were drunk. It's just uh, you think about all the stories and here I am today. Um and just how unique it is from my dad still being here after being pronounced dead on arrival. He's been sober for, he's going on 27 years this year. Um, next month, actually, February 17th will be 20 years for myself. And then my brother just celebrated 13 years. And so, you know, uh, I truly believe we're here for a reason. Our family's done some some hard work to get to where we're at today as individuals, but then as family members and the bonds that we have are, it's stronger than steel. But I talk about in my book, um, in behavior change, impacting the next generation. And so to still be here to your point of being a miracle, um, 
I just think about the people that I've been able, because I've been vulnerable and transparent, that's the only way that humanity, in my opinion, can grow is hearing somebody's story and being able to help and offer someone else um, some guidance and some wisdom. Uh, there's been so many people through the years, you know, of course, my dad, this is what he does for a living. He, he, he specializes in addiction studies um, and he's a counselor therapist uh, and truly saving lives. But from being transparent, I've had people reach out to me, all different walks of life, parents to, to, to younger adults, um, former teammates. It's, it's just been all over, all over the, all over the board. And, you know, that's the cool thing about this is I am here for a reason. I'm here to share my story and I'm here to bring hope to somebody that, you know, um, who might be struggling out there to say, look, like if this guy here, you know, this, uh, hockey player can do it, you know, so can I. And, um, I know today for me with where I sit at my age, with what I've gone through and I see my son now at three years old, I was growing up, you know, I grew up seeing something a little bit different than, but then also saw the change and what happens from hard work on getting healthy, you know, mentally, uh, with my dad and then me making that change. But what my son isn't going to witness is all that dysfunction that I went through with the drugs and alcohol. He sees dad and he gets dad in, in the fullest and, and, and I keep getting better as a human being. And so the thing that won't be masked through that process as he continues to grow up um, is seeing dad in a, in a word, in a weird uh, mental state because of, you know, him abusing some sort of substance. Was it that morning on the beach in Pensacola, sand between your toes, watching the sun come up on the horizon. That was, you mentioned that spark. Was that the turning point for you? It was the beginning. You see, I, <clears throat> when I came back after that season, um, and now just to finish that story, uh, my parents had no idea I was coming home. And the fact of the matter is I ran out of money, kind of overstayed my stay down there. And, um, hightailed it back home is where I where I found myself and when I tell you it was like I was a hologram or a ghost you know uh, when I rang that doorbell and I still visualize where everybody was that day uh, it was like they couldn't believe that I was standing there on this doorstep alive and so just that and in and of itself um, you know of course they brought me back in and uh, you know things started to to be talked about and what transpired. Uh, but dad saw quickly, like I wasn't, I still wasn't ready 100% to be fully committed to sobriety. Uh, he gently <laughs> helped me get a land contract uh, with a friend of his. And he basically said, look, I'm giving you the money to put down towards this land contract. You're gonna honor me with your word and a handshake and you're going to refinance this thing because you're going to get your life in order and um, you're going to refinance your house and, and pay me back a year from now. So 12 months. What's amazing through this story is I was still messed up, uh, got into that house. I was like, this is awesome. I got my own place. You know, I started in the family mortgage business, was making some money and um you know, it just, it escalated. I was engaged to somebody else who finally said to me, you know, I can't do this with you anymore. Gave the ring back. And, uh, you know, that was, that started 
that was the actual bottom to my, uh, to my drinking and drugging. And so, you know, through that process, we, we went our separate ways, but I was at this Y in the road where was this the bottom had I had enough or did I want some more pain? And what I chose to do at that point was when I was in that house, I called my mom. Dad was the harder landing, so I didn't want to call dad. I called mom. Um, <clears throat> I thought I was going to get something, you know, soft from her. And she did a great job. She'd already been experienced. You know, she dealt with my dad. And she, at an arm's length, gave me some some really good, tough love. Um, she came over and she said, look, we've given you the education. We spent over 20 grand for you to go to rehab for 30 days. Uh, you have support with people that you know who are in recovery, that are sober. And you've got a choice when I walk out of this home today, you can either go down the path that you, you're on right now, which we know where that's going to lead to. It's going to lead to death. Or you can pick up that phone and you can start getting help as soon as I get out of here. And I, I always share this story because I still think to my mom that day and she talks about it just on what she was going through as a mother, not knowing what her son was going to do as soon as she left that home. She was literally shaking driving home, holding that, that steering wheel. And uh, it was probably about 20 minutes later after she left, where I just, I fell to my knees and asked God for help. And, um, that next help was me picking up the phone and calling somebody that I knew was sober that could really mentor me. And, and I could, uh, you know, just, he would take me under his wing. It wouldn't be, he, there would be no judgment. And that's what it was. He, he literally said to me, you know, dust yourself off, grab a shower. We're going to go grab dinner together. And, uh, I'm going to take you back to your, to your first support group meeting. And, um, that was February 17th of 2003. You know, it's not the first time you mentioned your faith. How important a role did that play in all of this for you? I've always been very open about my faith. Um, it was always about God get me out of the situation. And I kept finding myself in situations. I kept finding myself almost like that two by four being smacked upside the head, but it still wasn't sinking in. You know, maybe I had one too many concussions. I don't know. Um, but looking back today, I am a firm believer that we go through things that help mold our character, that help us see uh, what we're actually capable of, but also a real big learning um, period of time. You know, life's Life's these peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, right? And so through those valleys is where our growth happens. It's not when we're standing on these mountaintop moments. Um, and I've always had that because I've gone through some really tough things in sobriety to where for some people, you know, even like yesterday, I saw someone on social media like, oh, you know, I had this thing happen to me. This this uh, this is going to require having a, a glass of wine when I get home. And it's And I'm not... I'm not putting that out there to say you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying for myself, you know, I've had many moments where I've gone through bankruptcy. <laughs> I've gone through foreclosure. I've I've watched really close family members of mine die. Um, those would have been easy excuses for me to go back out and drink and drug, but I chose not to. And that's just built this, this tool belt, this skill set. And uh, 
just something within me that God's provided to me. And that's, I, you know, of course I've had to do the work. It wasn't just handed to me, but he gave me opportunities and moments in life to where my faith today is so strong. Um, and again, uh, now today, instead of saying, God, why are you doing this to me? Now it's thank you for these moments that I've had. Thank you for what I have. And it's not, uh, it's not necessarily getting me out of trouble anymore. It's more about what are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me right now? Was putting all of this into book form, like behavior change, therapeutic for you? I would say behavior change, in a sense, was therapeutic from the beginning. I'm still working through my autobiography. What I Here's what's really interesting about this whole process of writing and becoming an author, which has been really hard, actually. Uh, something new, something foreign. Um, and I talked about it for years. This actually dates back to 2012. It was a real big personal growth year for me, both what I was reading, what I was consuming for my mental capacity, but then also in business, I saw my business can just explode. Um, and it was all because of the growth in myself. And I said, one day, and that was 2012, one day I'm going to write a book. And so that one day started back in uh, really the end of 2021. Uh, and I got serious at the beginning of 2022, but the autobiographies um, almost completed. I think that became very therapeutic on, on many different levels from diving back to my childhood, from seeing the growth in my family, uh, from then having to go through the story of, you know, just one, a couple of them that I've shared here today um, and bringing back those emotions, those feelings, uh, and then, of course, the mountaintop moments of sobriety, you know, what that's led to, the people that have come into my lives that I've been able to help, um, you know, what goes on in our home here. But then at the very end of that autobiography, which my plan was to have it done by February, but there's some just major things I need to get done. I'm still waiting on some literary agencies to see if I'm going to have a shot with some of these uh, people. We'll see. So I went a different route this time. I did self-publishing with with behavior change. But at the end of, of the autobiography, there's a specific chapter in there that's dedicated to my son. And I think through the whole process of writing that book, getting to the final portion of that with it being dedicated to Gabriel, it just it hits a whole new, a whole new heartstring for me. Um because you see the destruction on what you've done in your past and you hope that the way that you're going to raise him, the way that you're going to bring him up, the, the lessons hopefully that you're able to teach him through the, through the process of all growing up, that he doesn't fall into the same shoes as you. So in a sense, therapeutic, the, the, the story is going to get published. And there's going to be more to that story. Behavior change what I was so excited about is when I did do that, I made it specifically short and sweet because I wanted somebody to be able to read that within 30 to 40 minutes to where it was applicable to anybody, not just somebody dealing with addiction. But if you had, you know, you wanted to make habit changes in your life and, and it can be so many different things that you could apply this to relationships. You could apply it to business. You could apply it to anything that you really wanted to. Cause when it comes down to behavior change, it all has to do with the individual. And I wanted to kind of, 
give a, a little backstory and then weave in a little bit of that on how people can change and then bring context to the individual and where they're at in life currently to be able to utilize that book. Because the inspiration comes, and I said that at the outset, this is a cautionary, both a cautionary and inspirational tale. Looking at from where you came from, if somebody is just, you know, looking to change a, a bad habit, I mean, your addiction went far deeper than that. But what you're getting at here is we all have the capacity somewhere within ourselves to make Absolutely. that change. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, there's, there's five stages of behavior change and, and really where people get caught up on and someone will say, well, I can't do that. You know, that person's got more will or better luck or whatever that is. And that's a whole nother conversation, but you know, you get into this procrastination, you know, and that word is just so ugly. Right. Uh, and, and if you just, if you talked on procrastination and really what that is, you know, um, fear, fear is the number one most negative human thought out there. And that can be the fear of failure really attached to that. Uh, you know, the fear of what people are going to think of me because I make this change for myself um, and that I'm not accepted in certain environments, which, by the way, happens when you don't drink and drug anymore. You don't get invited to certain places. Um, and, you know, again, for me today, it's I, I have a there's just been so many years go by uh, to where that's not impacting me. But the procrastination is what is what absolutely kills people from not making changes in their life period. You know, when you go from procrastination and you kind of have this idea like, all right, there's something here, but I don't know if I'm ready to change yet. Maybe we'll cross that bridge in the future. That was kind of the spark for me when I was sitting on that beach in Pensacola. And then when I was actually ready to take action steps that would have been where I actually picked up the phone to call the person who I knew that was sober, that could, you know, kind of take me under their wing. And then from there, of course, you know, you're doing the action steps of maintaining that sobriety. So you're in action at that point. Um, when you start continuing down that path where they start to consider maintenance um, is, is where you've really start to look at, call it six to 12 months, you've made this change. It's not even, it's become a new habit. Uh, and you're just staying in this maintenance, which just basically means you're doing what's required for you to maintain this healthy habit that you've changed within yourself. You said something that really struck me when you talked about the places you don't get invited anymore because you don't drink and drug anymore. And I will never claim to be an expert, but I I suspect that when one is coming up on 20 years of sobriety, you probably just steer clear of certain places, certain things, liquor stores, whatever the case may be. But I noticed behind you, you've got a lot of pictures from obviously your days playing hockey and, and it doesn't seem like based on that, you're, you're shying away from that. And obviously that was a place where you, you were, you found trouble that was easy. It was easy to find trouble there. Do you still have fondness when you look back on your days playing the game? Oh, I love this question. It was so hard for me early on. I, Mike, like my wife said to me one night, uh, and this is before I came out of retirement, I think the first time she said, why are you doing this to yourself? Because look, like, here's what would happen. I'd go and play in the beer leagues. Of course, guys want you to come and play and I go and play and 
then you're getting slashed across the wrist and I'd snap and lose it. And then you're yelling at the referees and you're just like, you're walking out of the rink going, why am I wasting my energy on this right now? And she said, why don't you just stop doing this? Cause this isn't bringing happiness to you. And that was just part of it. So I stopped playing, but then when you're watching TV and you're watching hockey night in Canada back then, uh, and you're watching any of the games and you can pretty much go through any roster. Oh, I played against him. I played with him. It just, it starts to eat at you when you're sitting on that couch at home. And so I went through a really dark period, even at the beginning stages of me uh, in my recovery and my sobriety of that anger being so deep and dark um, because I knew what I threw away. Uh, and that was that was really tough for me for a long period of time of sitting there and watching that TV with all these guys that you played with and against. I didn't have much happiness. I I, I actually have a a uh, a memory of going to a Red Wings game and I'm like, you know what, I'm getting hammered, you know, and I'm watching guys that I played against. And uh, it was tough for a long time. Um, but I would say probably within. Oh, I don't know. Probably the it, it's been a good, I would say, 10 years. I mean, I can actually enjoy watching the game of hockey. And I'm like, uh, I can sit there and be genuinely impressed by the play. I can genuinely be there, be happy when you see a guy, you know, doing exceedingly well or watching some of these new things that are happening that we're seeing that's going to be history being made. You know, Vetchkin, for example, watching Bedard and World Juniors. I mean, it's just incredible what these athletes are doing. There's so many stories right now. Uh, but I enjoy I enjoy the game now today. Um, I just wish the games weren't so late at night in the beer leagues. Because <laughs> uh, I tell you what, I'm getting ready for bed around 9.30 at night these days. So those days of going to the rink and playing at 10 and 11 o'clock, that's just not happening for me. I got to say, as impressive as the recovery has been mentally for you in overcoming addiction, which I can only imagine the challenge there, but physically, and me being me, I had to chirp you for this just before we started recording okay. today, but you got to be in the best shape of your life right now, Smitty, and that's no easy task either. I'm telling you what, in all, in all seriousness, this is the best shape at almost 45 here. I'll be 45 in July. And I was no near, I was, was nowhere near what I'm capable of today, even in my, uh, you know, late teens, early twenties. Um, it's, it's incredible, uh, with the methodology and what I choose to follow and what I, what I implement weekly, but yeah, that's, that's, that's what I do. You know, I, I switched, um, I switched what I was passionate about too, right? Like I, I dove into the whole health and wellness aspect and I found out, you know, I was always really excited about fitness because my dad instilled that into me at such a young age, put together my first workout program. And he was kind of ahead of the curve really uh, where he was with that, um, with training and working out at 14, 15, when it really started to say, all right, you want this to be a career. Here's what you need to do to separate yourself from the others. Um, and so I, you know, I got certified as a USA weightlifting sports performance coach. I got um, certified in CrossFit and gymnastics and another weightlifting certification. I became uh, certified in exercise nutrition um, as a sports nutritionist. And then also uh, recently, as of last year, uh, became certified in change psychology, um, behavior change coach. And so it's 
this involvement that's happening. And, you know, that's why I talk about, like, I'm not, I'm still, I will continue to chase my hero, which is my future self, which I will never be able to catch because I just want to continue to evolve as a human being and just uh, within the health and wellness space. Uh, but it's really provided me an opportunity to hold myself accountable and, uh, and not just telling my clients what to do, but I also, what keeps the fire lit for me is seeing my son, because of course, being an older parent, uh, as active as this kid is, he's going to want to do it all. And dad's going to need to be in shape for what's coming. It's got to go hand in hand to some degree though, because I would bet dollars to donuts. You're not able to accomplish what you're currently accomplishing physically if you weren't well mentally. 100%. Um, that's a lot of thing. That's a lot of what I talk about with, uh, even specifically, like I did have, there, there was depression within my story. Um, suicidal thoughts at one point is where the drugs and alcohol was taking me, you know, I'd contemplated suicide. Um, when you have somebody and even people that are on the high, high end, uh, that have a lot of anxiety, um, fitness, is 100% going to change your mental capacity, your mental state with that uh, from a chemical release in the body with what happens, but also the physicality of what happens. Because if anybody who's worked out before, listen, I go into my garage weekly, five days a week, and there might be one day where I'm like, man, I'm ready to get after it. Those other days could have been broken sleep, just not feeling it, and it takes me 20 minutes to get motivated and as I start to move, I start to notice things are starting to shift my mental capacity. I'm starting to feel more limber. You know, the joints are starting to move. And then I have my workout and I'm like, man, I feel phenomenal right now. And so um, all of that does play into the mental side of, for me, it's part of my program. It's, it's ingrained in me. It's programmed in me. If I don't do it, uh, there, there's just something that's missing from what my daily looks like. And for me, like I wake up in the morning, I eat a certain way. I take my vitamins, you know, I read certain things in the morning to fill my mind with. I listen to certain podcasts uh, and working out is one of those things I just have to do. What would you say to the 16 or 17 year old Windsor Spitfire today or obviously any player on any team in the Ontario Hockey League, based on what you've learned and your experiences and where you're at today, what would you tell those kids? It's a great question. I think I've, I've witnessed some really good leadership with younger guys that have come up through the ranks. I've also witnessed really bad leadership of guys that aren't doing a good job of helping those next generation of hockey players coming up through the ranks. There's a time and place. Um, if you're really looking at the opportunity of where you want to be, not just in hockey, but also in life, you're going to have to separate yourself from individuals. And, that, and, and unfortunately, that might be certain teammates because of their off-ice uh, behaviors. And so instead of partaking, you got to ask yourself a question, you know, where do I want to be? Because... When I was younger, I was very short-sighted in what time really meant. The value of time today to me at 45, I'm coming up on halfway through my life. Hopefully I get to 100. Uh, I value time in a much different context and perspective than when I did when I was in when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. And the time does go by fast. So I hope that 
you know, maybe a 16 or 17 year old, 18 year old is listening to my story and they're understanding what drugs and alcohol did to my story. My story could have been different. I don't look back and, and, and it doesn't bring me anguish anymore uh, because I had to go through what I went through to be who I am today and providing a platform because of the experiences that I've gone through. I just hope that somebody will take this and understand that, have the confidence in yourself to say no to people, even if they're older than you. Uh, be very aware of your surroundings. Be very aware of watching what other people are doing. If you, if you find that you're seeing them partake in certain things that are super unhealthy and it's time and time again, probably don't want to be associated with those type of people. And so to reiterate, you know, just, just how important it is on that time that you have, if you're playing in the OHL and you want to get to the next level, the bad news will follow you. I was on the front page of the Detroit free press of mission curfew violations being traded away, as I mentioned earlier, from Pete DeBoer, from a contending team for the Memorial Cup to a non-contending team, to then being released in the minors, you know, from another team. And so if you find yourself to where, all right, I've had an incident here and I know this isn't right, listen to your intuition, uh, don't run from it, and then seek somebody that might be able to help you just to have a conversation about it. Because listen, the worst thing that you can do is not talk about what's going on up here and internalizing that and feeling like you're alone on some island. Why did you choose to tell the story, Rick? Why do you do what you do today? Well, it, I mean, it was a shift. It was one of the most uh, I, I probably afraid moments in my life where this was back in 2009 and I, I, in our community, I was sitting on the executive board for our Brighton Chamber, Brighton, Michigan, and then there was an offset of a group called Access, and it was young uh, entrepreneurs, 19 all the way up to 40, and I was the chair on that board, and there was a, a guy specifically who worked with the local paper, and it was just eating at me. It was eating at me because I saw another friend of mine who had been sober, and he's very transparent on social media. Um and I finally said to him, I'm like, look, you know what? I think I'm ready to do this. You kind of know my story, but I want to go deeper with it because I want people to see this is the face of an addict, of an alcoholic. It's not the guy underneath a viaduct with a long beard. He doesn't have a place to, to live. He's homeless. It's your next door neighbor and we need help. And so we need to help out the next person. That was the beginning stages of me really being transparent because that article came out on Mother's Day weekend and I knew the article was coming out and it was just like, what are people going to think of me? You know, how are people going to react? And now the cat's out of the bag, essentially, and everybody was going to know. Uh, it was the most liberating experience of, of my sobriety story because that was the beginning of me like, all right. I did that. I had so many people reach out. Um, and then it was just like game on. I just knew from my story that I could be a light. I could be a hope for parents. I could be a hope for other addicts and alcoholics. I've went and spoke at other OHL teams uh, that they wanted me to come in and share my story. You know, um, I've been very open 
with this in an attempt to help people to, first of all, not go down that path. And second of all, if you're in the path, we can help get you out and have a whole new life. I'll tell you what, uh, I'm ready to run through a wall for you. This has just been an incredible chat and we'll make sure it's required listening for anybody in the OHL today, parents, anybody coming up through the ranks. And importantly, where can we get our hands on behavior change? Yeah, so my personal website is uh, www.ricksmithchange.com. Um, you can go on the website there and actually dive a little bit deeper into uh, my personal story. Uh, I also have a, a free download workbook. You don't have to put in any personal information, um, but if you wanted to start making change yourself or know somebody um, that wants to make change and they need help, that would be a great starting point. And then you can obviously go directly to Amazon. It's both um, soft cover on there on Amazon. And also uh, for those that uh, like to consume digitally, it's uh, on Kindle. It's, it's just a terrific story. And I can't thank you enough, Rick, for making the time to share it with us and our audience today. Well, a thumbs up, Mike. I really appreciate you having me on. And again, honored to be here and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.